Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is John Badham from Saturday Night Fever and War Games and you're listening to Genre Attainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, for this 105th episode, we are chatting with Christopher Kentworthy, the author of the best-selling Master Shot series of books. We'll talk to him about writing and filmmaking and learn more about his Master Shots books and his newest book, Shoot Like Tarantino. We talk about how he first became involved in writing and filmmaking, what TV shows and movies he thinks are doing their cinematography the best, and he shares tips for writers and directors. Now, we also want to mention that we have joined two other excellent shows to create the League of Geeks Network. The network can be found on Blog Talk Radio, where you can find genre entertainment and partner shows SFP Now and Super Geeked Up. Our newest episodes can be found at SciFiPostRadio.com, and a few weeks later, the episodes will be posted on Blog Talk Radio. It is brand new, and we're still ironing out the wrinkles, but we're excited about the possibilities and hope you are too. And if you want to see our faces rather than just hear our voices, you can check out a recent episode of Super Geeked Up we guest starred on. Um, we talked about Star Wars, Captain America, Civil War, and we played some fun and geeky games. Now, before we get started with our interview here, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview with writer Christopher Kentworthy. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Genretainment. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, we look forward to talking with you about your new book, Shoot Like Tarantino, and also about your best-selling Master Shots book series. But before we get into that, let's talk more about your background. Now, you're a writer, a filmmaker, you've written directed films, and uh, you've not only written these books on filmmaking, but you've also written fiction books. How did you first get started with filmmaking and writing? It's funny, actually, because I always used to say to people that I started out as a writer and then gradually became a filmmaker. But when I look back through my old diaries and my old reels of film, I realized that I started making films long before I wrote anything. I think I made my first film on 8mm back in, oh, so many decades ago, I really don't want to mention how long ago it was. But <laughs> I, I was making films as a kid because I was one of those lucky people whose dad happened to have a camera and, and some reels of film he wasn't using, so I set out to make films. And then... Gradually, I realized that I was no good at it because there was no story to them. And then we started <laughs> writing stories at school, and that was, that was the thing for me. Once I got into story and realized that was the essence of fiction film, I was hooked. And so I started writing fiction from a very early age, became really intensely interested around the age of 18 and became professional in my early 20s and kept doing that for about uh, 15 years until I got into filmmaking. That's kind of interesting. I didn't realize, um, I'm guessing you're probably around our age, you were talking about, you know, film in millimeters. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we didn't really realize that I never realized that there's sort of this subculture of people our age when they were kids actually, you know, filming things because a lot of, a lot of people who are younger than us might, you know, they're used to cameras being everywhere and on phones and, but it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as common really back then. Not at all. And I, I look at kids now and their, their understanding of film is pretty unbelievable. They, they pick up an iPad and there are these apps that you can make movies with and <laughs> they put together some half decent stuff. And I'm you know, a little bit jealous that we didn't have this. I, I didn't <laughs> get to play with a video camera till I think I was about 17. Until then, I had to shoot this film and go through the whole process of waiting two weeks for it to be sent back from the lab <laughs> and putting it on a projector and then 
editing it, splicing it by hand. So I really did go through that process of having to care so much about the shot as you were setting it up rather than spraying the camera all over the film and fixing it in the edit. Well, uh, but which... you, I was going to say, but the good thing is, though, you, you learned, it forced you to, to be more conservative on the film that you used and you talked about how you learned how to tell a story <laughs> as a result. Yeah. I think it was a, a good thing. I would never romanticize film. Um, I mean, I still like that people shoot some things on it. It's interesting that the new Star Wars is shot on film and so on. I, I, who knows with the whole debate about film versus uh, digital. But I, I was pleased when digital came along because it made it a lot easier to see the rushes. And in, uh, I'm in Australia at the moment and getting the rushes was always a really difficult thing with film. Mm. So I love just being able to see what you'd shot straight away. But I made sure that when we worked with um, the Red, when the Red One first came out, that it was used as conservatively as with film. I made the everyone shoot as though we only had, you know, half a million feet of film and that was it for our <laughs> four weeks. Otherwise, people get lazy. That is very true. So what were some of the influences for you when you were younger, visual style-wise and story-wise? Uh, it's it's quite amusing, really, because I was uh, I had this long spell where I was sick off school, and uh, I stayed home and watched movies on TV all day, and I extended the period long beyond the length that I was actually sick, so that I could keep watching <laughs> movies. It was such an education because every day there would be you know two or three movies, everything from you know the forties and the fifties through to the, what was this? This was the 80s, I guess, so through to more recent stuff. And so my influences at that time were just everything. I saw, it felt like I saw every film that had ever been made. <laughs> okay, kids, <laughs> was, don't stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was a little bit naughty, but uh, so I, I just gorged on film. And then when I was old enough, I, I was lucky enough to live just around the corner from a cinema which you could get in to see any movie for a dollar um, during the day, if you went during the day. And so, again, I just watched everything that was made. And uh, there's no substitute for that, really. <laughs> you can't go in a movie theater and watch anything for a dollar anymore. No, That's no. Funny. So what are some of your past films that you did? It's funny. I was just going through this the other day, saying I, I worked in film for 15 years, and somebody said, oh, well, you know, what are the films you made? And I went, God, you know, in all that time, I actually only made one feature film. Um, and the rest of the time, I was doing a lot of corporate work, music videos, and and goodness knows what, because I look back and go, how did I pass 15 years and only make one feature? I don't really know <laughs> But I do remember it took about three years to raise the money and about two years to finish it. So that explains some of them. But the the feature's interesting because... Uh, it's called The Sculptor's Ritual, and I openly admit that I'm disappointed with it because I was making the, I started the Master Shots books around the same time. And in those books, I talk about how important it is to move the camera and position the actors in a way that is meaningful. Otherwise, you just end up shooting angle reverse, people looking at each other and talking. And then when I was making my own film, what happened? The clock's ticking, the dolly's not set up in time, the move is stuffed up six or seven times because you're trying to get it perfect, and you end up compromising. And by the end of the second day, I was going, oh, my God, I'm doing, I'm doing exactly what I tell everyone you shouldn't do. I'm shooting in a boring way. So I did try my very best to solve that and pull out the storyboards and say, look, we have to shoot what we, we're aiming for. We can't compromise anymore. But at the same time, I realized that it, it is a challenge. It is a real challenge to not just shoot conventionally and without style. You have to care. You have to, every time you're about to set up a scene or let the camera roll, you have to be doing your very best. Otherwise, you will look worse than average. Your average will look bad. Other people like the film and say, yeah, I did a great job. But I look back and go, oh, I could have done so much better. Like, We're always harder on ourselves. <laughs> I think that's every artist, really. Yeah. <laughs> I comfort myself with that thought. <laughs> you also write, you know, fiction novels. I think I saw Michael Moorcock actually uh, 
praised one of your novels. So, you know, can you yes. tell us a little bit about those? Yay! Yeah. Um, I was in the UK at the time when I was heavily into writing fiction and I became frustrated with publishing and of course my response was to set up a publishing company which was a little foolhardy but it meant that I met a whole load of writers who I remain friends with to this day who have varying degrees of fame and success now but everybody who was writing sort of between literature and science fiction and horror so at the time everyone was calling it slipstream I don't know if they do anymore if that's been dropped but this sort of cross-genre fiction and it was a beautiful place to be and we all wrote stuff that we genuinely loved um, it was a really great creative time and the wonderful thing about that in the UK is that writers like Michael Moorcock would turn up to little meetings that you'd have in a back room in a pub where there'd be five or six writers and you'd have this literary giant would turn up and hang out with you and then that meant it turned out he was reading my books. I had no idea. So when he wrote and said that, you know, he said something about me being one of the best British writers and I I just thought, okay, my career's finished. I can die happy now. That's, that's great. So. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your books? Yeah, um, the first one, well, I wrote a collection of short stories because I'd been writing stories for a long time and I did like the short form in the same way that some people don't like short films and say they're only a stepping stone. I really like them when they're done well, you know, one in a thousand maybe. So I wrote a short story collection called Will You Hold Me? And that was reasonably successful. It got really good reviews. So I moved on to write a novel. And the way that went, you know, like every other writer, I started novels and was trying hard to get somewhere. And then I heard that a friend of mine had written to a publisher with just three chapters of his novel completed and got a deal. And this was unheard of. It didn't happen. You, you, know, you have to finish a novel. You have to do a year's work, send the thing off and try for a year to sell it. So I thought, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. And in about four or five days, I knocked off the first three chapters of a novel with no idea how it would end and did the same thing, sent it to the same publisher and said, if you can do this for my friend, surely you can do it for me. And <laughs> to my astonishment, I got a contract a couple of weeks later and then I had to write the book. But the good thing was that what I'd started just from a burst of inspiration, did turn out to be uh, a whole and solid piece that looked as though it was fully structured from the outset. That book was called The Winter Inside, and um, it's about what happens when you're dragged out of your ordinary life. So the, the narrator is tempted into running away with his girlfriend and her mother when the mother leaves the husband, and things get violent and, and drastic from there on in. And it's about those moments where you could go, you know what, I'll just keep things a little calmer or no, I'll take a risk. And then you have to live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. yeah, the choices you make, they're not just story beats. They are things that change your life, the smallest little things. And then the, the final novel that I wrote, because I haven't written one since, not that's been published anyway, was called Pilotage originally. What did they publish it as? They changed the title to The Quality <laughs> of Light. That's right. And that's a novel about uh, initially about flying, because I love flying. And it, but it was also in parallel with that was this idea of people harvesting pain from this town in the north of England where there's so much pain that people would harvest it and use it in occult rituals. And it, it sounds so weird, this book, but when you read it, it's meant to come across as a very straightforward piece of literary fiction. And people say they read it and it just sounds like a true story rather than something genre. It just feels like, yeah, that probably goes on up there. <laughs> <laughs> I heard probably. stories. Yeah, we didn't want to say anything. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> now, your first filmmaking books that you did uh, was a three-volume series, Master Shot series, like you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, which... I really enjoy it's excellent resource for directors, cinematographers, you know, for planning their camera setups. Um, you know, there have been a few books like that before, but not too many and never organized to the level of detail that yours is. You know, so 
how did you come up with that idea of doing that book series? And, uh, and can you give our audience some more detail on how the books are broken down? Yeah, I, I set out to, well, in fact, I didn't set out to write it. I set out to buy every book that there was available on film. And I loved some of those other books that you're talking about, um, which I can't remember the titles of now because it's going back about 15 years. But I still found there wasn't something that broke down absolutely everything I wanted because there were lots of books that would say you could do this, you could do that, a general way to approach things is this and you should understand space. But I really wanted to know how directors actually did it. If you want a shot that makes you feel X, Y or Z, what do you do? They must have a method. So I started watching movies with the sound off to try and work out what they were doing with the camera. And I realized after a not very long, in fact, that there were patterns that directors were doing things where it wasn't just the camera move, it was the lens choice and the positioning and movement of the actors. When you combine all that, created a very specific effect. So the Master Shots books try and break this down. In the first book, I cover quite general areas such as action um, and romance, things like that. How do you how do you position the camera? How do you position the actors? Is there a camera move and what effect will that have? And the emphasis is always on what is the emotion and meaning? Because if you just point a camera at people and they don't move, you may get something out of that, but it might just be a documentary. Whereas if you push in on those people as they're talking and then you end up focused on one person's eye, there's going to be a very different effect. And if you shoot it with a short or a wide lens, however you want to put it, that's going to completely change the way things look in relation to each other. Space is changed utterly by your lens choice. So I became quite obsessed with this and wrote the book and found out that people were able to translate it really easily. Um, I got letters from some directors who've sworn me to secrecy who were working on uh, films and TV shows that everybody knows and they were taking the Master Shots, the original Master Shots book to set with them so that when they got stuck they could go, ah, okay, I really want an effect where it's more dramatic now. What do I do? Oh, yeah, page 57, I, I do that. And there's beautiful irony in this because these are some of my heroes who I'd been studying for all these years to learn these shots. But by having it all written down in one place, they were able to, you know, when they were stuck, refocus. The book worked for people to plan ahead. Um, it worked for people on set. And I think it also just opened people up to seeing the importance of actually filming rather than just documenting what's going on because there's often this debate about are you a camera director or are you an actor's director and nobody should be either you know even Woody Allen does some good camera moves he, he doesn't if the camera needs to move he's not going to just leave it sitting there so then uh, the second book Master Shots 2 dealt with a huge frustration of mine which is that dialogue is nearly always shot badly even by great directors you have this lovely, impressive camera move where everyone moves into the room and everything's working wonderfully. And then you get to the dialogue and you look over the shoulder at one person and then you look over the shoulder at the other person and they have their conversation. And maybe that's okay because you know, it works. If it works, don't fix it. But it gets really, really dull. And if you want something more, if you want to really mine the emotion of a scene, you have to do more with the camera. So Master Shots 2 said, here are a hundred different ways to do dialogue. You can be more interesting than you might be tempted to be. And I actually think it's the strongest book in that sense. It's, I think it's probably the least popular because everybody just goes, ah, oh, dialogue, you know, we'll just we'll shoot the dialogue, whatever. You know, that's the talk. <laughs> but it's like, no, please, people, if, that, if you only buy one book, buy that one and get your dialogue right. And don't have and then, just the talking reversal heads. Yeah, I, it's, uh, you know... It, what did Which I watch is so it often, well, it's so often necessary when they're shooting television shows in such a hurry. But yeah, if you are doing a film, you can take a little bit more time and plan something. Well, that's it. The, you know, if you watch the Grey's Anatomy type stuff and they, they try and, and brighten it up by doing the walking and talking, and, but then they always settle into the same old things at the end. If, you, if you're going to be making films or even if you're making TV, can you, can you do a better job than that? <laughs> and and some people do it it does happen i'm trying to think there was uh there was an episode of arrow on last year 
which I think it's from season two. Um, and I, I sat there thinking either this person has read the Master Shots books or uh, they just they care in the same way because every shot was doing something that made the story progress. And it was a beautiful piece of work. You know, it's just a superhero TV series, but it was fantastically shot. It was better than most films in terms of the way the dialogue was shot. So you can do it even when you're in a hurry. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then Master Shots 3, the idea with that book was to say, okay, here we've shown you the basic techniques. What do people do when they really, really want to ramp up the action and make it impressive, either emotionally or in terms of action? And so it's called the director's vision because... Uh, every director wants to stamp their own style on a film or all the films they make. And it's a more advanced work because, ironically, it looks at the basics. It goes back to the absolute essentials of what you need to do to, to get the various effects working. And then you can go out and make a movie that's absolutely your own. Mm-hmm. And then you also came out with three Master Shop books and um, uh, ebook, iBook format. They're not just an ebook, they, they actually have video content to them. Yeah. And that, which I thought was brilliant and perfect for that type of book. You know, how that come about? We got a lot of letters from people saying, you know, we really love the Master Shots books, but could you send us the time codes for the various shots in the film so that we could, you know, watch them? And my response was always, watch the whole film because <laughs> you, you'll get more out of it that way and you'll spot the shot and you'll learn more. But people kept asking, you know, could you maybe just shoot a little demo of the shot? And, for a long time, I resisted because I think it's important to learn how to visualize in your head without having anything else to help you. I mean, you should be able to picture what a shot is in a particular place. It's a very useful skill. But there was such a demand that we thought, well, let's, let's experiment and see how it works. And so we shot some of the scenes from the Master Shots books. We recreated them. And it was great fun. And then we realized that when we showed it to people, it was a fantastic teaching tool as much as a learning tool. So anybody who wants to learn from them can, but also teachers really, really like these books because they're able to, instead of just explain shots to people, they can go click and up comes a little example and then an alternative example and then an explanation. You know, so it's, it's a really rich way of, of looking through the Master Shots books. We didn't just take all three books and do all 300 shots because the file sizes for those ebooks would have been so huge. I don't think anybody owns an iPad big enough. You know? no. so, so we just took the best, uh, I think it was 25 shots that cover story, action, and suspense. Those are taken from all three books. So you've, you've got those three subject areas. And uh, yeah, they've uh, everybody who's seen them has given me really good feedback. So I think it was worth doing. Yeah, they're really good. I mean, you have the shot, you talk about the shot uh, and the setup of it, and then you have you have two versions of the video where one where you play it, uh, play it as is, and then another one where you play it again, but you have a voiceover, you know, just talking about the shot. I thought that was a really yeah. good way to do that. Yeah, it's um, it's also it depends what device you're using. I think actually, yeah, you can use them on a desktop computer as well as an iPad, but you can scroll through and stop at particular places and I was doing this the other day just I'd not looked at the books for a while and I found it really useful that you could just stop and see where the camera is and move a little further forward and see exactly when the pan starts and stuff like that so it was it's a much more detailed way of looking at things than just turning the pages in a book. So let's talk a little bit about action because that is a favorite topic of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you approach that and uh, maybe one of the, the methods or techniques you teach? Well, the thing about shooting action is that it's often, I won't say it's easier than it seems. It's always like anything in film, it's really hard and it takes a long time to set up and get a good result. But I found when I explored this in, in the usual way, as I do sitting there watching films with the, the sound off, that there were certain techniques that got really, really good results. Now, often directors would just put a lot of movement, uh, a lot of movement, a lot of cuts, and voila, you get some sort of feeling of action. But I realized there were some directors, who I can't remember now, but there were some who were doing more interesting things by keeping the camera rolling, but by choosing the right lens, moving the camera in a particular way, 
they were creating this sense of action without the stunts having to be all that impressive. And that's to the extent that when we shot the footage for the Master Shots action book, although we used stunt actors, uh, they weren't really doing stunts as such. It's just acting with camera moves that makes it look like action. Nobody has to fight, nobody has to hit the floor. Uh, you can make it look really violent, really fast, and really exciting just by using the camera and the actors in an interesting way. In writing, writers are often warned about cliches. <laughs> so mm -hmm. is there any camera move techniques that are kind of considered cliche out there? And uh, how would you suggest a director avoid or modify that method to make it more original? Yeah, there, there are lots that are, but it's whether you use them in a way that is relevant to the story that matters. So the, the, the classic push in on somebody's face at a dramatic moment, uh, it can look tired and overused and you know even the audience is like oh we're meant to feel this is dramatic because we've just rushed in at the character but if it's done well and at a point that serves the story to me it doesn't matter that it's a cliche that that's okay because ultimately you're trying to convey story if you go out there just trying to say i'm going to come up with an original camera move that's going to impress people you will impress other film people but the audience probably won't care. Um, and I, I think it's the most useful way to look at it is that you are trying to not please the audience, not even necessarily entertain them, but you are trying to get a story across to them. So it's okay to use completely cliched moves if, if you can achieve that. And, and this is why we all resort to the angle reverse that we were talking about before with the dialogue. Um, uh, Scorsese, for instance, shoots a lot of his films in this extremely conventional manner where most of the time it's just talking heads, talking to each other. But it doesn't matter. He's got great actors, great dialogue. He knows how to direct them. And at those points, it's okay. But at other points, when it needs more, then you have to be able to do more. I think the problem for a lot of new directors is they don't have anything other than the basic skill set. So when they go, right, this is the really important thing, they just shoot it the same as everything else. They'd be better off actually using some of those cliched camera moves and uh, <laughs> getting more out of it than, than trying too hard to be original. Because mm -hmm. I think the originality comes out of a director's need. If you're on set and you go, I desperately need this effect, if you're a creative genius, you will come up with something new that gets that effect and then the rest of us will learn from it. Great. Now, your newest book is Shoot Like Tarantino. Part of a little filmmaker people might be familiar with. <laughs> Who's that guy? <laughs> yes. Part of a new series of books, a new trilogy, I guess, uh, at least so far, uh, which will also cover Spielberg and Scorsese and future mm -hmm. volumes. You know, can you tell us more about how those books are constructed and what inspired you to go ahead and make this new new series? That was funny. After the uh, after the third Master Shots book, I said, you know, we've not covered every shot ever done, but uh, it, that's sort of as much as you can really say. But then I I was able to enjoy films a little more because I was no longer making them and I was no longer writing about them, so it wasn't work anymore. I was just enjoying watching films, and as I did so, I couldn't help but notice that some of the great directors had these bags of tricks that they were using over and over again to create these really great effects. And I <laughs> was just in awe, to be frank, about the skill level of some of them. And Tarantino, originally, I was, I was not a huge fan of. I liked his films well enough. But then I came back to them, and when I watched them with this in mind, thinking about this book series, possibly saying, you know, how could you shoot like Tarantino? I was just stunned by how clever that man is. He is, you know, I said this to someone the other day, he's often dismissed as, as being violent and shallow and self-indulgent, and he's the opposite. He is the most efficient and disciplined storyteller, and just brilliant. I never expected to write a book about Tarantino, but I was completely converted and love his films and think he's absolutely brilliant at what he does. And of course, the idea of shoot like Tarantino is not that you're actually going to go out and shoot like him because you won't have his actors, you won't have his stories, you won't have his budget, and you don't want to shoot like anyone else. But if you learn 
the skills that he uses, I guarantee you'll be 10 times a better filmmaker because his understanding of space and how people move within that space to create story is just unbelievable. And why those three directors that you pick? Is there, and was there any other directors you were considering? Yeah, I've got a very long list. And if the first three books do well, I might be <laughs> writing for the next 20 years. <laughs> that would be a great problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of directors that I chose Spielberg for the second book because despite it's funny audiences have a, a strange relationship with Spielberg if, if you ask the average person in the street what do you think of Spielberg they'll all go Bleh. you know he's so sugary and sentimental and oh, we all hate Spielberg but we go and see his movies by the trillions so you know there must be something that he's doing right <laughs> um, so th there's a love-hate relationship with him I think uh, but amongst filmmakers I think a lot of filmmakers know that when he pulls out the big guns, he is very, very, very good at what he does. And it's not because of money. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in Saving Private Ryan, which I don't actually cover in the book, but I watched the film recently. And there's a scene where the big battle at the beginning's over and it looks like there are 20,000 people in the background. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I froze the frame and counted the extras. I think it was about 80. So just by positioning and angling everything really, really well and really cleverly, he was able to make this scene look so rich and deep. And that is what good directors do. They don't just say, oh, I've got you know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars. They're saving money just as much as an indie filmmaker. They're not able to, and they're not willing to go, I, I want this, 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 and this, because they know they won't get the next project up. Even the big names, uh -huh. even Spielberg talks about struggling to raise money these days. Jeez, so geez. they're all working hard. And when you have those skills, you, you know, when those translate down to the indie level or even you know, if you have a, a, good, a huge budget even, then it's better to have those skills than to rely on just filling the screen. So Spielberg is, is hugely impressive with what he can do with the minimum. Uh, my favorite shot in the in the Spielberg book is one where uh, it's from uh, Schindler's List and the camera, I think it moves twice, it moves backwards, forwards, and it pans. And if you remember the scene, you think it was shot from several angles and it feels like so much happened in that scene. It's pretty unbelievable that it was the sort of thing you could do on the lowest of low budget shoots. It's, you know, it's, it's perfectly translatable, whatever your budget. And then with Scorsese, I, I took him on as a subject because although I've been watching his films all my life, I'd never been a huge fan of him either. But everyone was saying, well, you know, he's such a great director. So I thought, okay, rather than just pulling out my favorites, I'll, I'll see what's good about Scorsese. And that was really enjoyable because I got to watch a lot of films and see what was good, what I remembered, you know, not watched Taxi Driver since I was a kid and to watch it again and go, okay, it wasn't just the acting. It wasn't just the writing. It was what he was doing with the camera that made it so brilliant. And when Scorsese is clever with the camera, he is exceptionally clever. Um, it's just that he doesn't do it all the time. His version of efficiency is to be hands off most of the time, to shoot it simply as possible and then when he needs a particular emotion or a, a particular effect or a scene that you're not going to forget in a hurry, then he, he shoots with just incredible forethought. I, I don't know if he, I've deliberately not researched the director, so I don't know if he storyboards, if he plans ahead, if he makes it up as he's going along, but it looks like he's storyboarded every detail because the, the way some of those scenes come together, his, his understanding of screen direction and positioning within the frame and where everybody goes and how they relate to each other is just unparalleled. Mm -hmm. So who are some of the other directors you might like to do in the future? Uh, I'm sure Kubrick, maybe? Yeah, uh, definitely, because he was different every time he made a film, which would make it a challenging book. But yeah, uh, that, he's on the list. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very tricky thing, this list, because one of the directors that I wanted to cover was David Lynch, but... The problem is every, every film student always tries to be like David Lynch. 
but they make the mistake of just trying to be weird and they miss the point that for David Lynch, the weirdness, that's just how his brain works. He's actually trying to shoot fairly conventionally. Um, it's just that he sees the world in a very strange way. And when you strip that weirdness aside, what he does with the camera is often very, very inventive and very practical. And there's so much that can be learned from that. But it would be a very difficult book to write because I think people would be going into it thinking we're going to be having spinning ceiling fans and flashing lights and <laughs> you know, dancing dwarves. And that's, that's, not, that's not really what makes David Lynch David Lynch. He's, he's way more skilled than people give him credit for. I'm going to make a film of all three at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some recent works in film or TV that you think are doing an excellent job in their camera work? That's a difficult one because with film, I've become a little bit disillusioned and I did stop going to the movies for a while because I just couldn't bear to see another city getting knocked down. It was <laughs> getting so old. And it was happening in so many movies as well. You, you start watching a movie and think, this is going to be about, surely this is just going to be about Superman. But no, no, it's about the whole city getting knocked down. And I just, I can't yeah. stand it. It's just so much movement for no reason. And I, I find it very, very boring. So, so not that uh, sector. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I did like, um, he did Watchmen as well, didn't he? Which I quite liked. Yeah, um, but there was a lot of style there, but I, I don't like the rest of what he's done. It's, ugh. Um, that was actually, the Superman film that he did was a really interesting example because the trailer was my favorite trailer for a film that I'd seen in years. It was like an art movie. It was so beautiful and the exact opposite of what the actual film was like. So <laughs> there's something to be learned from studying those two things separately. Um, in terms of TV, it's difficult not to mention Game of Thrones, and I find that one interesting because they are relatively conventional in their shooting. They've got so much to do to, to get that show done, but they can't be too, they can't spend too long lingering on the camera shots. But I was lucky enough to speak to one of the directors who worked on it on the first season, and he told me that although they have to work fast, they are encouraged to shoot with their own style and to make sure that they get the emotions. So HBO, bless them, are not there saying, hit the deadline, get everything done, you know, you've only got so much money. They say, you need more money to finish it, then you get that. Um, and that's, that's rare and beautiful. So they do shoot scenes in Game of Thrones in a way that captures the emotion. It's not just coverage. I think that's especially true of the first season, a little less so as they've gone on. I also thought um, Arrow up to season two was, they were using a lot of great directors who were doing beautiful camera work in that. Um, season three, a little more difficult to tell because there, was, there were just too many characters. And uh, I recently watched Daredevil as well, which was a, a really a leap forward in terms of shooting action for television. I was very impressed with that. Um, Did you like that? The famous hallway fight scene? Yeah, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've watched it. <laughs> I think it'll go down as infamous. Yeah, yeah. Because, was that in the first episode, the pilot? Um, no, it was, no, it was, it was later down. I'm not sure right. when exactly, but maybe episode uh, four-ish or something. Or later. It must have been fairly early on because I remember thinking, are they going to be able to keep this up? Are they going to maintain this level of <laughs> style in their action and they never quite matched it again but it didn't matter it's legendary now so <laughs> uh what about um just to run out a few more uh, season one of true detective oh which i haven't seen oh. so uh, season one is good oh okay there we go and this this is one of the problems that you get is just seeing as much as i used to watch you know, I, I, earlier on in this conversation, I said I once felt like I'd seen everything that had ever been made. That was possible back in the 70s because not as much had been made. Now, there is such a huge back catalogue of stuff to catch up on. I still haven't even seen The Sopranos. So, you know, <laughs> all the West, oh, West Wing, uh, uh, and what's the other one? Another series that everybody else has seen. So much to catch up on um, if you're to be relevant, but 
you know, there's only so many hours in a day, and I try and limit myself to like, only a few hours of TV. You know, so. <laughs> you got to spend some time writing those books. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. it. It's a very fine line between knowing what's going on and being connected, and watching so much that you never get to write or make anything yourself. It's very difficult. You have to either consume or create. You can't, you can't yeah. do it at the exact same time. Yeah, I think you can do it when you're in your 20s because you, you can get by on three or four hours sleep. Uh, apparently, you can do that in your 50s if you're Peter Jackson, but <laughs> I can't. So He's dosing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would suggest season one of True Detective, some good cinematography there. Storytelling. Oh, right. um, oh, and I don't know if you've seen Sense 8. That's another really well done cinematography work. So. No, there you go. Oh, that's good. Oh, because... we really liked that. Yes. All right, I'll... It's always good to know that, and this, I do think this is happening more and more. Um, if you think back to maybe oh, what, 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, there was a, a little bit of embarrassment about watching television. People would uh, say, I, I don't watch TV, I only watch films. It was sort of a, a snobby thing. Mm -hmm. And then TV started getting so much better. Um, I think, you know, Twin Peaks we mentioned earlier, I think that was when TV started to get really interesting and just got better and better and better and now some of it is is so great uh, it's it's very difficult to drag people out to the cinema when tv is so good i mean I, I don't know what it costs around the rest of the world but in australia if you if you go to the cinema uh, a couple of people and you buy dinner as well you're looking at 150 dollars for your night out so it's uh, and that's that's doing it on the cheap you think well you've got to really want to see that film uh, yeah, you could buy ten Blu-rays for that, and you know, if you're a movie fanatic, would you rather sit at home in your perfect home theater, or do you want to go to the cinema where everyone's eating popcorn and spoiling the movie? So <laughs> it's it, it's a shame that the wonderful atmosphere of going to the cinema has been a, a little bit eroded, and this is why they smash so many cities up because they have to <laughs> they have to have something. So they have to spend thirty minutes destroying a city. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> If you took out all the explosions in the movie, it'd be about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely changed because just 15 years ago, the, uh, you know, even the big multiplexes were showing art movies all the time alongside the big big movies, and it just doesn't happen now. So. No, it doesn't. No. But yeah. TV's filled the gap to a large extent. Um, I think you know, indie films, feature films, it's very difficult to, to get them seen, but... Uh, Oh, thank goodness people are still trying. Um, I saw one the other day, uh, what was it called? Safety Not Guaranteed. And I think the director's just been hired to do the final Star Wars movie. Um, and I love the fact that he had you know, $700,000 and made a film that looked as good as something that should have cost five or six million because he knew what he was doing with his camera. I, I presume it's the director. I could be doing a huge disservice to the cinematographer here, but you know, I, I've not researched the film. But it was beautifully shot. It was absolutely gorgeous, and I think they shot it with, uh, you know, digital SLRs, which uh, is pretty unbelievable when you watch it. Yeah, it seems to be happening more and more, uh, and sometimes iPhones. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, much trickier with an iPhone because you've you're stuck with one lens unless you get one of those little attachments and. And that uh, just looks funny. Yeah, it's, it's strange. And if you can't change the lens, then, yeah, you can shoot a feature film on an iPhone. But to me, lens choice, although it, it sounds really technical, it doesn't take more than half an hour of walking up and down a corridor with, you know, changing just a zoom lens, just zoom in, zoom out, see how the lens changes. You need to understand that if you're going to film in a way where you're in control. If you only have one lens setting, the camera's controlling you. You're limited by the iPhone look. Everything's going to look like it came off an iPhone. And, uh, but, you know, maybe iPhone 12 will be a little different. We'll see. Yeah, and that's in your books, too, you talk a lot about lens choice also. Yeah. Uh, on top of not just camera setup or camera move, but also about thinking about your lens. Yeah, because it's. I spoke to a, there's a director I knew uh, I'm in Perth, Australia, and there was a director who was just about to go on to her first feature film, which ended up doing pretty well. But I went to visit her on set, and she was, well, the shot was being set up. And I was saying, you know, aren't you going to go and look through the, 
the camera? Don't you want to see the shot? And she's like, oh, no, cinematographer does that. And I <laughs> found it absolutely unbelievable. I was like, well, who's, who's making the film? Don't you <laughs> care what it looks like? You know, the, you, I don't think you should try and take over the cinematographer's job, but you should at the very least understand. If your cinematographer says, okay, I think we should shoot this with a really short lens because it will do this, this, and this, you should be able to say, ah, oh, I, I would prefer a longer lens because it will achieve this, this, and this. And if you don't know that, then you're not controlling the image. You're not really directing the film. You're just, you're working with some actors while somebody else makes the film. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Which can be okay. That can work. And, you know, it worked for her. Her film turned out pretty good. So I hear. I never actually saw it. But <laughs> now, um, I'm wondering, shoot like Tarantino, you have scenes that you break down from various Tarantino movies. Did you have any trouble, you know, narrowing down some of those scenes? It's really interesting because I, when I set out to write these books, I thought they were going to be pretty huge and that every director would have so many interesting techniques that to do them justice, they'd have to be really big books. But although I can't underestimate how much I admire the directors. There's no doubt that they all have a set of techniques, tricks, whatever you want to call them, that they come back to time and time again. So the trick for me was to spot those. What do they do repeatedly? And what do they do that's repeatable? What can we take? So it actually wasn't that difficult. You watch the films and there are, there are certain scenes that stand out just because they're so good that you go, okay, I need to know how this was done. And, and when you analyze it, you see there's something there that is just so potent and useful. But no, it was actually really, it was really easy to sit back and watch the films and start seeing the, the techniques that are used over and over again and how useful they are. I, I don't make films anymore, but when I was writing these books, I was like, oh, I wish I'd known this because any scene could be made better by knowing these techniques. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, we have a fair amount of writers who listen to show. And since you've done novel writing, you've also done some screenwriting. I just wonder if there's a tip you'd like to share from either one of those mediums or, or both. Like I said at the beginning, it really does all come down to story. And I think the better that writers understand what directors are doing and the better that directors understand what writers are doing, um, the better the end result. A lot of people who start out writing for film talk about it purely in terms of it being a visual medium and that's what I teach but it's also auditory and it's about story above all it's about conveying a story with a bunch of actors in the camera so you can't really think about that too much when you're writing but if you don't understand the process of how a director picks up a script strikes out all your directions that you've put in, strikes out half the action you've put in. If you don't understand what's going to happen when the script ends up in a director's hand, then you're missing a great opportunity to write a better script. I think once you've seen that process and how a script turns into a film, you can write better. So something that I, I sometimes teach uh, a little bit of this stuff, and I say to people, for instance, look at the Shoot Like Tarantino book, read this chapter, watch the film, and then read the script. Now, it's a little bit different with Tarantino because is it always that he writes his own stuff? Probably. I don't um, know if it's usually. I don't know if it's always. Usually, yeah. usually, yeah. So he's writing <laughs> stuff. Um, so he knows and so he can do shorthand. But I guarantee even he will do the same thing. Once he's picked that script up, he'll be striking bits out all over the place because once you're on set, you go, that doesn't work here in this room. That's not what we're going to do. That doesn't work with this actor. We need a different line there. And so directors adapt constantly. Yeah. But there is there's really no substitute for reading a script, watching the film and seeing the difference, seeing what changed. I think Eternal Sunset, Eternal Sunset of the Spotless Mind. Is that how you say it? Yes. Eternal a, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That, that's it. That's the there one. you go. That's a great <laughs> film. All too. the useless trivia I got rattling around in my brain, I was able to pull that up. <laughs> yeah, Eternal Something of the Something. That film, um, when you read the screenplay, uh, he's a that, that writer is really famous and has won, I think he's won Academy Awards for writing, and yet the screenplay 
is a million miles from what that film ends up being. And when you see the film, it follows all the story beats that we all learn, and yet the script doesn't. So the film is a lot better than the script. (laughs) The screenplay is is not the best, (laughs) I have to say. So that is a really, really good one to to read and watch. And, uh, yeah, once you see the, the way a director makes that work, you learn a lot. Yeah. Tarantino's probably not the best example, uh, even though he's done some partnership stuff, but but definitely Spielberg is a good mm-hmm. example of someone who's taken other scripts yeah, and collaborates. Well, and, you know, the first Star Wars script was just famously terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like the first thing that always pops into my mind is, oh, yeah, it's like Star Wars first script bad. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, I love watching the... Um, the auditions for that and I think they were modified from the original script and they're they're so terrible it's yeah, just are. it's a joy to watch <laughs> it's like how did that all end up being okay <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah well ideally you know the screenplay is the foundation right to build off of so hopefully usually when it works right like Star Wars that collaboration makes it better so like a whole host of heavenly guardian angels that came down and made that happen because yes. <laughs> divine intervention was the only thing that was going to make that work <laughs> and i think to an extent you're always sort of hoping that that's going to happen that this this weird magic will will come about but as a writer the best thing you can do is is not rely on it is write yeah. something that is so good that the director picks it up and they see their own vision of the film. So although as a writer you have yours, your job as a writer is to put the story on the page but not the visuals so that the director picks it up and goes, I can make this look better than anybody else. And that's how scripts sell. Um, I, I don't... I, I'm no expert on this, but um, the little bit I know and the little bit I've seen when I've been at film markets, it's when a director gets excited, it's because they think they can do something better than anybody else. Yeah. And what's one last quick uh, filmmaking tip you'd like to share with our audience? Um, (laughs) Be as healthy as you can be so that you don't get tired. (laughs) (laughs) Because you will get tired. (laughs) You will get tired, and it, it really does spoil things. Uh, When I was talking about my feature film at the very beginning and how I ended up compromising, the reason for that, the main reason was that I was also producing it. So I'd spent a year raising the money, three or four months in pre-production, and in the week before we started shooting, I was having to do accounting and all sorts of ridiculous things that weren't my job. So that when I arrived on set, I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, oh, I can just power through. And, you know, if you're in your 20s, you might be able to do it slightly better. But it will make anybody uh, worse. Tiredness just ruins creativity and encourages compromise. So I think to do everything you can to be as fit and healthy and awake without using cocaine. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you might want to throw that little bit in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, be awake, but but do it the the good and healthy way. Yeah, <laughs> we've run into that too. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I only found out afterwards that some of the other people were getting through that way, but yeah. Oh me. wow! <laughs> and they don't really remember the shoot. <laughs> no, 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 but that's perhaps a good. They're like, I'm on that movie, really? Wow. <laughs> That's what happened to me during those two weeks. Yeah, I don't Whoa. remember those two weeks. I thought I was abducted by aliens. <laughs> well, all all films are like that to an extent. I um, when I finished on that film, and somebody sent me the making of tapes, they they'd shot a load of video, and I realised that there was uh, an old friend of mine had worked on the movie, and I never knew she was there. <laughs> We were there for five weeks, and she was on set every day, and I hadn't even realized. So wow. it's you become so focused on the people who are around you, and you know when you're with the camera, you're with the camera and the actors, and there are forty odd or however many other people 
that you don't even get to make eye contact with for five weeks. Which mm-hmm. so it's, it's a it's a surreal experience. Especially if you tell them not to make eye contact with you. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> he was making fun of. There was an actual like film. Yeah, yeah. and I got in trouble because I accidentally well, made eye contact. Well, it, it, it's yeah. <laughs> that too. I don't even think about that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that was funny. No, but I know what you're talking about. We were um we made our web series and we just got so fatigued. You know, mm-hmm. I mean <laughs> it was we were working each full-time jobs on top of that. Oh, and, yes. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, by the time we get on set, I'd been up all night. Um I had was doing the catering too. <laughs> and we were both producing and I was catering and we both worked full 40 hours or more that week at another job and and (laughs) I was just like I'm never doing this again (laughs) because you have to try and remain human you you don't want to come out at the other side of it a hating film and and be destroyed You, you don't want that no film is worth that so it's a it's a difficult thing to get and the the thing we were talking about, uh, not making eye contact with people, it, that's one of the other really good tips I was given uh, early on by a, a working director over here was when you arrive on set, be friendly to the departments that you don't get to interact with much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so go to hair, go to makeup, ask them how their night was, be, you know, because those are the people who dictate the atmosphere of the set. It's not you. you you've got to be... Yeah, the director's yeah. going to be in a little huddle and just uber-focused the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so you, you have to try and love and respect those people and show them that you care and, and listen to them. And you know, I remember during one scene, um, we couldn't get the result we wanted from the lead actor, and so I, I just said to anyone, okay, I'm, I'm really tired. Does anyone have any ideas? And uh, the, the woman who was doing the makeup came up with a really good idea and that's how we shot it and it worked fantastically well. So, you know, you if I hadn't been friendly to her all along, then she might have just been like, well, he's he's so up himself, I'm not going to, you know, help out here. But Yeah, um, or he's not going to listen to me or Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it does have a downside when you're that open, it can mean that the actors come in with pages of the script rewritten the way they want them. And, <laughs> Has that but, ever happened? That happens, yeah, and that was that's like, so Chris, difficult. Chris, I think we need to destroy the city. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be a lot of explosions and 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 lens flares everywhere. <laughs> actors come in with a rewritten script. It doesn't matter even if it's only one word that's changed. It feels like they're destroying the city. So um, you want their feedback, and it's wonderful that they're that engaged. But this is where you have to walk the line between, you know, it's a benign dictatorship. You have to, ultimately, you have to be the one that makes the final decision. Yeah. Um, I couldn't just say to my makeup person, shoot the scene for me. I had to, <laughs> I had to be the one that shot it. So, yeah, it's, it is a team. It is teamwork, but you do have to lead it. So you won't give in if they say, I'd like a giant lizard come in, destroy the city, and tons of lens flares. <laughs> Not that. No, off my set. Draws the line there. <laughs> I draw the line here. It, it is worth giving in sometimes to keep them happy. In that film, there was the actor, he just could not get into the evening until we'd shot this scene of him walking through a corridor in a particular way that he wanted. He set up this shot, we shot that, and everyone was like, why are you doing this? You're never going to use it. I'm like, because it'll make the actor relax. And it did. He calmed down after that, and we got a good night's work done. Um, but it's yeah, you've got to be careful. You've yeah. got to be very yeah. careful. All right. The well, fine art of compromise. <laughs> so before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find you and your work online? Um, yes. Uh, I've... Actually, to find me online, you'll have to Google me because my old website was, I better not say stolen or I could get sued for that, but it was taken away from me. So now I've started a blog, uh, which I think is ChristopherKenworthy.wordpress.com, or you can Google it and hopefully it will appear before too long. 
And I'm actually going to start writing uh, a proper blog about film and in particular story. So it's going to be film, fiction, screenwriting. So that's where I am. The books are available, the Shoot Like series and Master Shots are available on Amazon or from mwp.com. And um, they've got a great Facebook page as well. And the Master Shots ebooks are only available through the iBook store and you have to search for them. It's really hard to find them, but uh, it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. It was great speaking with you. And, yes, thank uh, you. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Hi, this is Christopher Leone, writer and director of Parallels and one of the creators of The Lost Room, and you're listening to Genre Tainment. Big thanks to Christopher for taking the time to speak with us. We'll have the links he mentioned listed in the show notes. Now, coming up on our next episode, we'll have an interview with author Monica Lionel. She is a successful indie author of fiction and nonfiction, and she wrote the excellent book Write Better Faster. And she also has many new books scheduled to be released soon. Now, if you're a writer, then you don't want to miss that episode. Before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or by following our Genretainment Facebook page, my Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at Genretainment.com, or follow all the shows at SciFiPulseRadio.com, and also our new network, League of Geeks, over at Blog Talk Radio. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until, Until next, next time. time. Ben Monkey.